your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Vijay Nadav. Vijay is a molecular physiologist, and his laboratory investigates how the molecular constituents of organisms change during aging, with the overarching aim of developing novel anti-aging interventions. And so we talked about the cellular biology of aging. What is aging? How is it different from development? Can we reverse or potentially even stop aging? What are some of the physiological hallmarks of aging, and how does aging differ between different organ systems in the body? We spent a lot of time talking about recent work he's done and published around a atypical amino acid called taurine. Taurine was found to decrease across the lifespan uh, in rodents and in other animals. And if you give exogenous taurine to animals, it can increase both their lifespan, how long they live, as well as their health span, how many of those years of their life are spent healthy with their organs sort of working as they should or looking more like a younger version of an animal. And so we talked about you know what taurine is, what's known about it and its history, how this atypical amino acid works and, and what its physiological functions are, all of the different age-related effects or aging-related effects that taurine had when they gave it to mice, as well as whether this is likely to be true in humans. Does exogenous taurine supplementation, is that going to uh, have the same anti-aging effects in humans as it did in rodents and other animals? So we talked about some of the clinical trials that have been done around taurine, as well as some of the clinical trials that are in the works. So if you're interested in aging biology and the cell biology of aging and how it works, and you're interested to learn how a circulating factor, a nutrient like taurine, can have anti-aging effects, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the Mind and Matter podcast, please check out mindandmatter.substack.com. You can sign up for my free weekly newsletter or become a paid subscriber to access content early and help support the podcast further. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy-free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form, and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. 
Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Vijay Nadav. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. Can you just around who you are and what your scientific work is focused on? So my name is uh, Vijay Yadav. I'm an assistant professor of genetics and development at uh, Columbia University. My lab investigates uh, how different um, changes that happen with age contribute to the aging process and to identify novel interventions to treat diseases of aging. And the overall goal of my lab is to increase healthy lifespan in humans. And, you know, it it seems like a basic question, but what is aging exactly? Is it is it just sort of a, a generic term that refers to the general tendency of things to sort of break in our bodies over time or, or is aging is it is it more of like a regulated process that's that's sort of more definable so uh, in my um, opinion is that aging is a process which uh, is to an extent regulatable uh, but at the same time it is a process that is eventually going to happen the goal here is how we can delay this process and how we can make sure that we are having a least amount of um, disease phase at the end of our life. So all of us are going to have diseases at the end of the life. But the goal here is to minimize that period, which is a disease state. So you can imagine aging as a process which is equivalent to a house. When you build a new house, um, it's like an adult human being. But with the age of the house, you start getting small damages. Your pipe leaks, uh, your uh, roof is uh, leaking. Uh, you have a problem in the house. The paint is starting to wear off. And this is equivalent to what is happening with aging. There are cells in our body that repair these damages. There are organs that are able to uh, replenish these damages uh, much easily compared to other organs. But uh, overall, there are organs which are more susceptible. To give you an example, for example, liver. If you remove part of the liver, liver has the ability to regenerate itself. To reinvent uh, itself, literally, to be able to perform the function again. But if you remove part of the brain, it will not be able to do so. 
So therefore, the, the aging is, is a constellation of changes happening in our bodies that ensure that we have the not only a way to regulate some of these events, but at the present time, in my personal opinion, we do not have a defined way to reverse these processes. And how how is aging different from development? How 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 should we think about differentiating those two processes? So development um, is a good question. Uh, well, one can view developmental processes as a way to look at aging. For example, during development, there are massive amount of proliferation going on. Organs are being shaped into the final shape of the organ. Uh, the way heart is going to look like when it is going to be an adult uh, heart, for example, or liver. And then these cells are accumulating. So in there is a concept in the aging field, which is a developmental origin of aging, which says that during uh, development, we have a defined set of processes that are happening, which can be looked into or which can be tapped into uh, by manipulating those processes. When you are an old human being, you may have the ability to recap some of the uh, deleterious changes that have happened in our bodies. I see. And, you know, there's a lot of obvious external markers of aging that everyone sees and everyone is familiar with. But when we start to think about physiology and stuff going on on the inside, um, different molecules whose levels go up or go down, um, different, you know, sort of metabolic pathways that go, start to go awry. What are some of the major hallmarks of aging in terms of our, our internal biology? So at the end of the day, everything boils down to cells. So if you look at uh, different organs, they are composed of different uh, cellular cellular properties. They have, for example, primarily liver is composed of hepatocytes, a cell that has the ability to uh, perform particular functions or detoxification, for example. Uh, therefore, at the end, it is the cellular functions which are present in a, an organ. And with age, we have variety of changes happening in these cells. It limits their ability to function. Not only it limits their ability to function, it limits their ability to send signal to other organs. So cells are not working in isolation. So you have cell intrinsic events that are happening, which is happening within the cells. And then you have cell extrinsic events, which is regulated by the environment or the hormonal milieu that is present in which the cells are present. Um, and in the cells, you have variety of changes happening with age such as increased accumulation of DNA damage because cells are not able to repair these processes very well. You have mitochondrial dysfunction. You also have loss of telomeres that open up the end of the DNA and make it more prone to damages. And you also have ability of the cells which is changing as far as the nutrients are concerned, their nutrient sensing ability change. So these uh, processes together uh, are classified um, roughly as nine hallmarks of aging um, some years ago. And 
these processes are looked into when it comes to cell intrinsic events that are happening within the cells. But at the same time, you have changes in the physiological milieu or the circulating molecules which cells are exposed to. And this is how organs communicate with each other. It is an integrative physiology. Our organs are not functioning in isolation. They are talking with each other through sending signals to them, receiving feedback. Hey, I'm doing well. You need to, you need to regulate me. Or I'm doing bad. Help me. So these are the integrative, the concept of integrative physiology, which is how organs communicate with each other and how this communication deteriorates with age also contributes profoundly to the process of aging. I see. So there are cell intrinsic and cell extrinsic factors here. There's stuff sort of inside individual cells inherent to those cells that can start to break down things like the telomeres, which sort of regulate how um, exposed the DNA is, the mechanisms responsible for repairing things like DNA damage or responding to something like oxidative stress, um, you know, di different pathways when, in the cell. And and I would imagine th those types of things are basically, sh they're shared by all, all cells, whether it's a brain cell or a liver cell, even though different organs and tissues might age at different rates or something like the liver might be able to regenerate itself, whereas other organs can't do this. Those are problems that that all cells face. And those are things that start to break down over time, no matter what the cell is. And then there's these cell extrinsic things going on. Um, and, and so you mentioned that there's, there's, you know, a lot of communication happening between cells and between tissues and organ systems. So cells can release hormones or nutrients can circulate throughout the blood and all of that stuff um, is a factor here too. And so, you know, up until your recent research, what are some of the major th extrinsic factors, uh, things circulating in the blood that people had been thinking about and looking at when, when they were thinking about aging? So there have been a lot of advances, um, growth factors, for example. Um, there are a lot of studies that have been done to look at uh, protein molecules uh, that circulate in our blood and that may impact the aging process. Uh, for example, vascular uh, endothelial growth factor, VGF. Um, people have looked into the IGF-1 as a hormone uh, that can uh, affect the uh, aging process. Uh, growth hormone axis. So these are the factors that have been looked into in the past uh, to in order to look at the communication between the organ systems. And these um, different molecules are secreted by specific organs uh, predominantly. For example, growth hormone acts through the liver uh, to produce IGF-1, which is circulating in the body, uh, principally. Uh, it does not mean other organs don't produce IGF-1. It only means that the, the major contributor to the IGF-1 circulating IGF-1 is liver. And, and, and these have been looked as interventions to in order to alleviate uh, various processes that happen uh, with age. And this is what uh, one needs to investigate, how organs are communicating with each other. Because... Um, Humans are multicellular species, much more complex than a unicellular eukaryote uh, or uh, yeast, for example, uh, because we have much more dependency on uh, um, other organs. 
we have developed circulatory system we have developed nervous system we have developed uh, neuromuscular systems uh, we have developed skeletal system um, uh, so bones for example and these uh, organs uh, allow uh, our bodies to perform different functions and they need to be regulated uh, properly uh, in order for us to maintain a healthy uh, body yeah and and you know there's when we think about these um, circulating factors that cells can sense and that are involved in cell to cell or organ to organ system communication, you know, there's a couple of different things that come to mind for me. There, on the one hand, there are things like hormones, which are produced by our own cells. Certain cells produce these; they secrete these. They coordinate different, you know, physiological changes throughout different systems in the body. Um, of course, you can add exogenous hormones, and people are doing that. You know, people are taking testosterone or growth hormone therapies now. But under natural conditions, th those are things that are produced and and secreted within the body. But then there are also things like nutrients, which come from the external world. And, you know, there's obviously many different nutrients. Um, and, you know, at a very coarse grained level, we, we all understand that certain things are basically good for you and certain things are bad for you, depending on the molecule and the concentration. What have we known uh, up until recently about, um, you know, certain nutrients that might play an outsized role in the aging process, either promoting more rapid aging or having anti-aging effects? Are there nutrients that clearly have one or the other? Yes, um, and indeed, there are. Um, so if one looks at a historical perspective in biology, one gets a glimpse of the importance of nutrients. For example, I'll give you an example of a disease here. Uh, which was very prevalent up until 1920s. Uh, it, is, it was known as pernicious anemia. So pernicious anemia was a disease where patients were anemic and uh, they were bedridden. They were not able to move very well and they died. That is why the, it was termed pernicious. And so up until 1920s, there was no cure for this disease. Uh, and then... Um, many investigators started investigating how uh, pernicious anemia is, is uh, developing in these patients. And what they discovered, initial experiments were done in animals, in fact, uh, dogs. So one of the investigators, um, he bled dogs to make them anemic. He bled dogs uh, profoundly and now the, the dogs were anemic. And then he fed them different diets. Hmm. What he discovered when he fed dogs animal-based diet, in particular, liver, raw liver, the anemia was reversed. Hmm. So he gave the dogs raw liver, it reversed the anemia. And, and for those who don't know, anemia, does that just mean that the blood is not delivering oxygen yeah, effectively? Red blood cells, yeah, red blood cells are uh, depleted in these anemic patients. And then based on this foundation in an animal experiment, two clinicians, uh, one in Canada and one in the USA, uh, decided to feed humans uh, with pernicious anemia or liver. And this led to a very um, controversial at that point uh, a, a experiment in humans uh, where they were feeding raw liver. The surprising part was anemia was reversed in humans as well. Hmm. And these three individuals got Nobel Prize in 1934 to feed humans raw liver. And that was uh, Whipple, Minow, and Murphy. 
so that to cure to find a cure for pernicious anemia we did not know what liver had till that point and that is why it was a very um, challenging um, i would say that even for the uh, nobel prize committee it would have been challenging decision um, what, what, um so just before you go on with this piece so you said they started doing experiments in dogs they discovered that feeding them raw liver cured this form of anemia what other diets did they try they tried um um uh, different diets for example uh, vegan based diets uh, and other uh, diets but we are looking at a specific disease here pernicious anemia mm -hmm. so we did not know till 1934 what liver contained which reversed the anemia and then people started purifying what was present in liver that was curing anemia and it was discovered in in uh, 20 years later um that the molecule present in the liver was vitamin b12 that humans cannot synthesize it mm. and we absolutely need it in our diets therefore it, in today's world for example uh, nutritionist supplement b12 for people who are on a pure vegetarian diets so uh it 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 tells you an example here that liver or, or there is a nutritional component of our health if, if such which and in the absence of these nutrients we have dramatic diseases which were incurable just 120 years ago because we didn't know about them one can talk about vitamin c here one can talk about many other nutrients which are coming from the animal based or plant based diets and what it these tell you these uh, evidences tell you is that the the way in human society has evolved our nutritional preferences have evolved and we have developed these nutritional preferences based on our needs because some human societies or some ethnic groups migrated to colder climates uh, and they were probably having more animal based diets some migrated to more tropical uh, climate and they developed more grain based diets and then had a supplement uh, milk and eggs um, and things like that to have a more um, well complete diet in my view uh, and this also tells you the nutrition is very important for the health of a human being hmm. yeah and and So like we don't have the ability to synthesize vitamin B12. I don't know if this is your area but is that like an example where we never had that ability or did we lose that ability and other animals have that ability and and perhaps we lost it because it was so plentiful in our diet ancestrally? No animal can no. No animal or eukaryotic cell can synthesize B12. Hmm. The only species on the planet that can synthesize B12 are some bacterial species. and some ruminants for example cows and other uh, ruminants have this uh, bacteria which are synthesizing b12 in the part of the stomach before b12 is absorbed and they are able to host these bacteria able to absorb these vitamin b12 synthesized by bacteria into their blood stream then store in their liver and muscle and that is why liver which is a principal storage organ uh, beside muscle in in the animals 
uh, when we eat animal-based products, it was curing pernicious anemia because liver stored B12 and recycled it. And that tells you that some things we cannot just synthesize. It just uh, evolutionarily, we have not evolved to synthesize those molecules, but they are essential. In the absence of vitamin B12, we have anemia. And it is very prevalent in aged population because once you have uh, once you're aging, we have the reduced ability to absorb B12 from our diet. And therefore, we develop anemia and other diseases, consequences of that. I see. So because something like B12 is stored in certain animal tissues like the liver or the muscle, is that why that's why those organs have such high concentrations of nutrients like this? And that's why you have to supplement if you're not eating a diet that 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 it doesn't enable you to consume those animal organs. Enough. Yeah. Enough amount of it. Yeah. You're right. Interesting. Um, so, you know, obviously if you're deficient in something, you can supplement with it. You can just, you know, consume it one way or another um, and that can reverse the deficiency. Um, what, uh, so you did some work recently where, where you were looking at, um, you know, things that can be found in the diet and things that circulate throughout the body and the relationship between these things and aging and whether or not, you know, there's, there's always this question of, you know, if you look at animals across their age, things change, obviously. So, you know, different nutrients or different molecules or different kinds might, you know, decrease or increase as an organism ages. And there's always this question of, um, is this a consequence of aging or can these things actually actively regulate the aging process. Um, so you looked at something recently called taurine, and I'm hoping you can talk to us about that. And if you just want to start out by by describing, you know, how did you narrow in on this molecule and, and sort of get started on this project? Sure. So uh, almost 12 years ago, uh, when I was in Cambridge in England, actually, we were doing a metabolomic screen uh, in humans in the blood. And the goal there was to identify what is changing with age. And this um, experiment uh, that we did identified that many molecules were changing with age. And among these uh, screen, uh, the molecules that were changing dramatically with age, we found that one molecule in particular was uh, going down uh, with age. And this molecule was taurine. So, up until that point, uh, I didn't know much about taurine. So in 2011-12, I didn't know much about taurine. In fact, when my uh, senior investigator came and told me, do you know what uh, taurine is? Uh, my first uh, response to her was, I don't know much about it. I have heard about it, but I don't know. Uh, what does it do? Let us find out. So at that point, we started investigating, uh, okay, what is taurine and what does it do in the body? Well, taurine is not a new molecule. It was identified in 1827 in ox bile uh, by two German scientists. And almost for 140 years, um, nothing much was known about taurine uh, because biochemistry, molecular biology, and all these areas of science were evolving at that point. In 1950s, People became rich and there was introduction of pet foods in the society. 
So because people were having nine to five jobs, they needed some kind of a pelleted diet to be given uh, to their pets when they went to office. And this introduction of pet foods in the society by pet food industry led to precipitation of many diseases in pets. Ah. Um, cardiovascular abnormalities, growth defects. One of the most striking aspects of this entire episode of introduction of pet foods in the society was many cats started going blind. Hmm. Now, you can imagine a rich household having a cat that is not growing very well and that is going blind. It's hitting walls. It is um, dropping vase at your home. And it's a very distressful sight for any pet owner. So, well, society came together. So because they were so prevalent, um, they came together. They said, okay, let us uh, fund some scientists and try let them figure it out. What is going wrong with my cat and why is this blind? So this took around 20, 25 years for scientists to figure it out. Why cats were going blind on a pet food. In 1975, there was a seminal paper published in Science uh, that showed blindness or retinal degeneration in cats is caused by deficiency of a single molecule in their diets. And that molecule was taurine. Hmm. After so, that, cat food was supplemented with taurine and blindness went away overall. Oh, wow. So, so that one molecule was responsible for all of the, uh, all of those particular health problems in cats and, and i guess the whole the whole idea here is up until people had cats in the house uh as a common thing uh pet cats were sort of just domesticated feral cats that still went outside and ate birds and ate mice and you know all of the normal foods a wild cat would basically eat so then we start domesticating cats further they're spending time indoors we need to come up with pet food um if our cats aren't going outside and feeding themselves and just due to our ignorance, I guess, not knowing all of the things that the cat needs in its diet from a nutrition standpoint, we just made what we thought they needed and it was deficient in things like taurine and, and other nutrients. Yeah, we, we, we don't. And it's true for human beings as well. Because we don't know what are the ideal nutrient composition that we need for a specific body needs. Mm. We are evolving. We are trying to understand this requirement as best as we can. Almost 100, 100 years ago, we didn't know B, we needed B12. Um, we didn't know that we needed a specific um, components coming from the uh, vegetarian diets, for example. So these, these nutritional composition is also dependent on the specific uh, ethnicities, the specific uh, dietary styles, uh, a specific uh, location or the environment we live in as a human being. Uh, and I think still we are not 100% finite um, or we don't have the complete understanding of what this nutritional requirement is because our genetics also has been shaped up. And now with the movement of populations across the world, with easy movement, uh, we are moving around uh, and uh, we are living in environments we never lived in. For example, a person who is uh, coming from a tropical climate, uh, he synthesizes enough uh, vitamin D, for example, and then it mo he moves to a colder climate where there's less sunlight. Um, suddenly, he is vitamin D deficient. So now the, the changes in these um, 
nutritional uh, composition of the diet is becoming much more important than it was let's say 40 50 years ago when the movement was limited um, and these these things need to be given careful consideration when we are looking at a perfect nutrition to have a healthy uh, body so you know by through this uh study of of pet food and, and what was going on with cats domesticated cats they discovered taurine um obviously it had a profound impact on the cats i mean if it was you know having that big of an effect um you know it's amazing that a single nutrient just supplemented can have you know that big of an effect what exactly is taurine what type of molecule is it and what do we know today about its just very basic physiological functions so taurine is a very small molecule is amino acid uh, and it is um, a typical amino acid because it has it's so amino acid have uh, two groups uh, an H2 group and a carboxyl group that allow them to form peptide bonds and to be incorporated into proteins. But taurine is atypical. It lacks this carboxyl group. It has a sulfonyl group. Therefore, to the most part, it remains as a free circulating molecule within the cell. And taurine is, uh, can be synthesized in our bodies uh, by liver to an extent and some other organs. And we are also dependent on its consumption uh, in the diet. So, for example, when a child is born, uh, it is deficient in the ability to produce taurine. It is dependent on it. And uh, therefore, in uh, almost a few decades ago, baby formula was supplemented with taurine. Mm. And then as we grow further, um, we start developing some capacity to synthesize taurine. But in uh, to, to give you a glimpse of it, we do not know the dietary versus the endogenous synthesis component responsible for the promoting healthy life. Because during the development or during gestation, when the baby is in uterus, it has five to tenfold higher concentration of taurine in their in its body. As soon as it is born, it is out of the mother's womb. Now, mother is not able to supply the taurine. The, the levels uh, fall down and it is dependent on uh, exogenous supplementation uh, in the baby formula, for example, for human. And then uh, during it starts developing some capacity, then it goes down further as uh, it ages. Uh, as humans age, uh, it could be different uh, ability to have a differential nutrient absorption and as well as different ability to produce taurine endogenously. Hmm. So, so taurine is an amino acid, but it's an atypical amino acid. It's not like a lot of the other major amino acids that maybe people have heard about. Um, so when we talk about amino acids, right, there's a uh, for those that don't know, there's essential and non-essential amino acids. Sometimes our bodies can produce them, so we don't need to get them in the diet, even though we 
we don't strictly need to get them from the diet, but we often still do need to consume them. But then there's there's other ones that we can't produce at all, and then we need to get through the diet. And then my understanding is, you know, there's 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 some wiggle room there. Some of them are semi-essential, and we can produce them to some extent, but not maybe as much as we need. So we still need to get it in the diet. And it sounds like so taurine is one that our some of our cells can produce to some extent, but we get a lot of it exogenously from consuming it. And it's also different from other amino acids in that it's, I think you said it's typically not incorporated into com- proteins as a component, like a building block of the proteins, but it acts as, as it just floats around through the bloodstream as its own molecule and it does various other things. Plenty of things, plenty of things. Uh, in fact, um, it is taurine is classified as a semi-essential. Um, and uh, during uh, development, um, it is essential. Uh, it is promoting the growth uh, of the body organs. Um, and it is very much important to, during the early growth period, uh, postnatally. Um, and then you have a phase when it starts regulating different processes. Um, and it, it has been known since the, those uh, studies in animals and cats and dogs, uh, which showed that taurine was important for uh, growth. Taurine was important for um, eye problems, uh, which they were precipitating because of pet diets, uh, cardiovascular problem, cardiac failures. And these studies in, started, uh, I think, a profound interest in the society and in scientists in general to find out what taurine is and what does it do. So these studies um, made people interested. And since these uh, discoveries in um, up to 1990, uh, people have been interested in taurine. They have shown that it regulates muscle function, it regulates um, brain functions, it regulates obesity, it regulates um, um, pancreas functions, and so on and so forth. Um, but what was not known till when we started investigating is um, whether taurine... Um, affects the process of aging and that is where we started investigating because taurine levels were down in the old animals compared to very young animals uh, we started uh, asking a question um, is t- the levels that are going down are their driver of aging or they are just a passenger of aging which are just going along for a ride uh, there's a collateral damage happening with the aging process. And that question that you asked in the beginning, uh, is it a causal event? And that is the, exactly the question we started investigating almost uh, more than a decade ago. Um, by looking at old animals, um, then we supplemented them with taurine uh, once daily after optimizing the dose and frequency of administration for life. And these mice that were supplemented once daily with taurine for life from middle ages, uh, when taurine abundance was low, lived longer. Hmm. On average, uh, females lived around 12% longer and um, males around 10% longer. So 10%, so we're living 10% longer. So that was a human being, assuming that you got a comparable effect, you know, you're talking about uh, about a decade of time, almost a decade. Yes, eight to 10 years of life, you can add on to that. Yeah. So you said, so in mice and other animals, taurine levels go down with aging and you started supplementing mice in middle age. Yeah, absolutely. Equivalent to 45, 50 year old human. And, and, and are the mice just like eating the taurine? Is it part of their diet? How do you give it to them? So that is, that is where the nutrition comes in picture. So 
mouse diet lacks taurine. So therefore, we um, looked at, first we looked at uh, in, a, in our pilot studies, uh, giving um, taurine in their food. That means the continuous, uh, continuously mice is eating and is able to consume taurine. And at the same time, we did once daily uh, oral uh, administration of taurine. What we found out is in initial pilot studies, once we gave animal once daily taurine, these animals were much more healthier compared to when we provided that taurine in their food. Because taurine was not elevated enough, in mm. my view, in the blood to be able to impart the health benefits as robustly as when it did, when it was given once daily, like once a pill, mm. once a day pill. So that is where we gave once a day administration, oral administration of taurine to the mice. And when you say oral, does that, that still means that they're swallowing it and it's going through their digestive system? Yeah, it is going through the digestive system. In mouse, how you do it, uh, because, um, well, you cannot give a pill to mouse and it's going to swallow. So there's a procedure known as a gavage, uh, which is given uh, where you administer in a solution uh, the molecule that you want to administer. And um, that way, animal does not, um, it consumes the entire dose of uh, the molecule. Mm -hmm. So so you give taurine to middle-aged mice, once per day, and they can live something like eight to twelve percent longer. Um, you start giving them in middle age because that's that's probably when taurine starts dropping off or or when it gets particularly low. Um, that's a pretty major effect. Um, you know, one question people might have is, <clears throat> did the mice live longer, um, or and or did they uh, feel better or look better? Um, did, did we it sort of increase the end of their life when they were old, or did they um, actually have an increase in their so-called health span, the amount of uh, healthy, functional life that they actually had? Absolutely. There's a very important criteria for any uh, anti-aging intervention. So not only we want to live longer, we want to live healthier or reduce the period of the diseased period that we face at the end of our lives. And that is what indeed we did next. We now supplemented mice, middle-aged mice, with taurine once daily for one year and then measured variety of organ system functions, either in life or terminal. And what these studies uh, showed is that no matter which organ function we looked at in our studies, uh, we looked at bone density, it was improved, neuromuscular function uh, was improved, they had less anxiety, they had a better memory, better glucose tolerance, better insulin tolerance, better GI transit, and their immune system was functioning closer to the younger immune system. So these studies told us not only taurine was making animals live longer, it was making animals live healthier lives. Interesting. So basically anything that you looked at, whether it was brain function, you know, how, how well their, their mouse brains were working and how well they could remember, whether it was bone density and musculoskeletal function, whether it was just general metabolic health um, and how they're processing energy and stuff, uh, whether it was immune function, basically everything that you looked at, it sounds like you looked at a whole bunch of things. Everything looked better. The older mice looked like younger mice in terms of their physiology when they were supplemented with taurine. 
Yes, you're right. Um, you're right. And uh, not only so the mouse uh, is just one model organism. Uh, we use it as a model for uh, interventions. Uh, we then investigated, okay, is this uh, effect that we see in mice, is it also observed in other species? Then we looked at worms, uh, another model organism, C. elegans, which is an invertebrate model organism uh, used in aging research. And what we found is that worms that were supplementary with taurine, uh, they lived longer as well. At a higher doses, they lived uh, somewhere between uh, 10 to 23% longer compared to worms that were not given taurine. So these uh, two species we saw a robust effect on uh, lifespan and uh, health of these um, different organs. Then the major question at that point was, uh, um, how about humans? So we went to as close to humans as possible. We did a monkey intervention study where we supplemented uh, monkeys once daily with taurine and then looked at their organ functions uh, six months later. So monkeys uh, that were supplemented with taurine, uh, they had reduced uh, adiposity, they had more bone density, better liver uh, function, they had a better uh, glucose or glycemic index. Uh, also, their immune system was uh, functioning better. Uh, and in the blood, they had a less oxidative damage markers. So in these three species, one can say is that, okay, taurine increases health span and lifespan in mice and worms and health span in monkeys because in monkeys we only investigated health span just because they live longer and you didn't probably didn't have time up to 30 years they live so so you see this in multiple species you see it in rodent this effect where you get an increase in lifespan and health span um, in rodents you saw that in an invertebrate species that's a very evolutionary distant relative you also saw the increase in health span in monkeys um, another mammal, obviously closer to humans. I mean, w this would imply, I would, I, I would think that, you know, taurine is just tapping into very basic biology that's evolutionary conserved to a large degree um, between all of these different species. And that would imply that there's a high likelihood that you might see similar effects in human beings. So so what do we know about taurine in humans? Do, do taurine levels go down in a similar fashion as humans age like they do in other animals? And do we know whether taurine supplementation works in humans or, or are people doing those trials or do we think it's plausible? So we did uh, some studies ourselves and uh, I'll tell you more about what data exists in literature. Uh, so people have noted the taurine uh, abundance um, goes down in some tissues in humans. For example, in brain, it goes down. Uh, in skin, it goes down, uh, the content of taurine. Uh, in plasma, people have shown uh, that it goes down. And in our studies, we noted that taurine levels were uh, going down uh, with age as well, in particular compared to the younger humans. So what um, this uh, told us, okay, uh, taurine uh, levels which are down in old people may contribute to uh, different age diseases. And we investigated this process. We had access to longitudinal health data for around 12,000 people. Um, and this study also had measured uh, taurine levels and taurine metabolite levels. So we performed the association clinical risk factor and uh, um, taurine uh, and its metabolite association. 
And this association analysis showed that humans that had low taurine levels uh, had more obesity, they had more type 2 diabetes, they had more hypertension, they had more um, BMI, they also had their glycemic index was uh, poor, and uh, they had a variety of other health conditions. In other words, uh, taurine, uh, low taurine levels in humans is also associated with variety of diseases in a large cohort of people. And this also raised the question, what about a healthy state of a human being? So what happens to taurine and its metabolites in a healthy state? So well, the reason at that point, the exercise is a very healthy state of a human being. So let us put a bunch of people on a bicycle, an exhaustion run, and then measure their taurine levels and metabolite levels before exercise and at the end of the exercise. So when we measured taurine and metabolite levels, taurine levels and its metabolite levels went up in uh, after exercise. Hmm. It went up in sedentary individuals which don't exercise normally. It went up in bodybuilders. It went up in marathon runners. Mm -hmm. And it went up in sprinters. And so, it, it goes up in response to a behavior like exercise. Does that mean yeah. it's stimulating endogenous taurine synthesis? We don't know. That is the question that we don't know. Uh, is it endogenous synthesis that is going up? Uh, or is it the release from organs that are storing uh, mm. taurine uh, goes up? I see. So it could uh, be that know. it's a storage of exogenous taurine that we've gotten from the diet or something and it just gets released. Yeah. I see. So where do we get exogenous taurine naturally? Um, from certain foods? Yeah. So taurine is uh, naturally present, present in animal-based diets, such as shellfish uh, are very abundant in taurine. Um, uh, it is like a... It's, it's less, in my view, one milligram per gram. So even if you eat 500 grams of shellfish, uh, you're going to have 500 milligrams of taurine. Um and um, so animal-based diets are rich in taurine, in particular shellfishes, as I said. Um, and we can get, uh, by eating those uh, animal-based diets, we can get taurine. Uh, it is also present in milk um, and uh, other uh, products from animal-based uh, products. So we can get from animal-based diets. Yeah. So it's pr primarily found in animal-based foods, um, protein-rich animal, protein-rich foods. That makes sense. It's an amino acid. It's intuitive, at least. Um, if it's if it's present in those foods that are part of human diets, what why does it go down when we age? So that is the question that we need to investigate uh, because it is. Um, for example, it could be that the absorption of uh, taurine is uh, compromised as we age from the gut, as well as uh, the production of taurine from the liver uh, primarily or other organs is goes down with age. Um, or it could be that there is resistance of the action of taurine in the cells. Mm, so sort of like insulin resistance. We still have insulin in our bodies, but we our cells stop responding, responding to insulin. Mm -hmm. So these three events we have noted um, that these are compromised, uh, but we do not know how these processes are being shaped in humans because uh, taurine is, is uh, a molecule that has a diverse physiology across mm -hmm. uh, evolutionary spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I guess your, your work in animals, because you were able to supplement 
uh, rodents and other creatures and see the effects that you saw, this would suggest that at least in those species, it's not taurine resistance because otherwise that, that wouldn't work so well. Um, so based on the animal research you've done, um, are you guys or anyone else doing clinical trials in humans or, or trying to figure out if this works in humans or would you expect it to work given what you've seen and what you know so far? So there have been a few clinical trials looking at taurine. People have looked at, for example, uh, obesity. So people have looked at um, diabetes. People have looked at anxiety. People have looked at um, liver function. So people have done discrete trials. And in all those trials, taurine had a positive effect. Mm. And there was no side effect or no red flags have been noted for taurine. Uh, in these trials, people have used uh, somewhere from one gram to six gram of taurine. Per day? Per day, yeah. And that's just giving like a pill? So people have done some clinical trials, but as far as the aging is concerned, uh, there is no comprehensive investigation looking at taurine as a uh, an anti-aging intervention, looking at various endpoints, uh, looking at health of various organs. So we have been putting together for the last couple of years now uh, a team of uh, international investigators to perform a multinational clinical trial. Because we do not know at the present time how taurine metabolism is changing in different ethnicities, for example. Right? We do not know because the our metabolism is different depending on the ethnicity. As I alluded to in the beginning, that uh, depending on our dietary lifestyle changes, depending on the environment we live in, our metabolism has shaped up. Mm -hmm. A metabolism of a person who is living in colder climate is going to be different than somebody who is living in tropical climate. And our genetic makeup has changed over thousands of years to accommodate those changes. I see. That, that makes sense. Like as people just move to different parts of the world, yeah. Yeah. you know, you could imagine like the Inuit probably have adaptations to a high fat and very animal rich diet. Absolutely. And that is where we are at the present time. We are putting together this multinational trial looking in multiple ethnicities, looking in um, various populations uh, to look at, at uh, how taurine intervention is going to improve the health of uh, human beings. And that uh, is uh, coming up and uh, hopefully we will be able to find uh, enough resources, enough uh, funding uh, there are a lot of interest already. Uh, we have a clinical and basic science partners in Germany, in Singapore, uh, in uh, a couple of countries in Asia, mm -hmm. the US, we are developing such a team and we have a uh, good interest at the present time. So right now we are developing the study. We have a kind of a study protocol. We are we are bringing together different expertise, uh, statistical expertise, clinical expertise, basic science expertise to look at the endpoints. Uh, and um, hopefully we will, be, we will be able to start the clinical trial um, with such a vast uh, clinical trial uh, by the end of this year or uh, somewhere in early part of next year. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like so So they've done clinical trials already for specific things. So the effect of taurine on liver function, on 
glucose metabolism and things like that. You said that in all those studies so far, they've seen positive results in humans. And it sounds like the, everything that they've seen so far in humans is consistent with what you've seen in rodents and other species, more or less. Yes, I think that is um, absolutely right. Um, and that is where we need to now uh, put together this uh, um set of endpoints to look at more closely how we are going to um, investigate that um, this entire slew of things um, so so there are already clinical trials that is a good news uh, no red flags have been raised uh, upon taurine supplementation to to give you an example for example when they looked at type 2 diabetes they gave one gram taurine three times daily uh, for eight weeks when we looked at obesity, they looked at uh, three gram capsules for per day for eight weeks. When they look at postmenopausal women, they looked at 1.5 gram daily taurine uh, uh, for 16 weeks. In liver disease, they looked at two gram taurine per day. In congestive heart failure, people have done uh, doses uh, six gram per, per four weeks, three gram four weeks, uh, 1.5 grams. Uh, and things like that. So there, these doses, why am I illustrating these doses? The doses that we have used in animal studies is equivalent to 3 gram per day mm. or 6 gram per day. I see. So you use three, the human equivalent of 3 and 6 grams per day in, in your animal study. So, yes. so if you were to give people the same dose and do the same things that you guys did in animals, it would be 3 or 6 grams a day. And in all of the clinical studies that have been done already in humans, they're using you know, one to six grams per day, it sounds like. Yeah. And also, according to European uh, Food Safety Authority, up to six grams per day taurine in humans is under the safe limit. I see. So it's bioavailable enough to have an effect. Um, there doesn't appear to be any negative side effects at these doses in humans. Uh, with all this in mind, like, do you, I mean, do you supplement your diet with taurine? Well, that is the question that I have uh, avoided to answer uh, to the most part, because in my personal opinion, any answer I will give you uh, is going to influence a lot of people. Mm. And I tend to believe in the data and therefore I would wait for the clinical trials to be completed. Um, because if I tell you I supplement taurine, a lot of people say, hey, this guy looked at 11 years of his life on taurine. Uh, he's supplementing, so I should do it. Um, if I tell you I don't take subtaurine, hey, this guy worked on 11 years, he doesn't believe in himself, so I should not take it. So I don't want to be an influencer because these are anecdotal evidences. We need a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial looking at different ethnicities, uh, larger populations in order for us to come to conclusion. Uh, and next three to four years, I think we will accomplish these goals uh, for the clinical trial. And... Uh, Four years later, we can go out to public and say, hey, look, this is these are the effects that you see. Um, and these are the conditions that you see that are benefited by taurine supplementation. You can go for it or you cannot go for it. Uh, under some certain circumstances, you cannot take taurine. For example, people with kidney disease, uh, they cannot excrete taurine. So you, one has to look at all these uh, different parameters in order for us to provide a suggestion to the public at large. I see. Um, so going back to some of your rodent studies where you guys could dig into mechanisms and get into details a little bit more, um, 
you know, there's this concept in aging of of cellular senescence. Um, can you explain for people what is senescence and and what did you see in mice in response to taurine supplementation? So senescent cells are cells that accumulate with age. Normally, these are age cells which uh, undergo variety of damaging processes in the cells, um, and uh, they are cleared by our immune system. But with age, these cells accumulate in different organs, causing dysfunction of those organs. And these cells are just one piece of puzzle in the aging process. They are not the only player in the aging process. They are one of them. Besides senescence, you have other processes also that change with age. And we looked at these um, age-related changes in the cells uh, to try to see what uh, happens with the, in a taurine-deficient animals and what happens if you supplement aged animals with taurine. And we measured a variety of different organs, looked at these hallmarks of aging. As I said in the beginning, they are classified as nine hallmarks. And in a transcriptomic study, what we noted is that senescence and other features of the aging were enriched in taurine-deficient mice, which were having an induced taurine deficiency. And when you supplement with taurine, these aging features were changing. I see. So, so when you guys make mice taurine deficient, you see things like changes in gene expression, certain genes going up, going down, that are associated with with aging and senescence and things. And then when you supplement taurine deficient mice with external taurine, uh, those markers go down. Yeah, those markers uh, change in a positive direction. That's why some some markers, um, for example, uh, autophagy uh, goes down with age. And if you supplement taurine um, in organs that we looked into, uh, autophagy goes up. Uh, Senescent cell accumulation was reduced uh, by taurine supplementation. We looked at mitochondrial dysfunction, which was in... Um, meaning um, taurine supplementation made uh, mitochondrial health better. We look at nutrient sensing. Taurine made cells sense nutrients better. Uh, we look at DNA damage. It uh, uh, Taurine suppressed DNA damage, consequences of DNA damage, uh, and uh, reduced the inflammatory state uh, the cells uh, were into. And when it comes to like mitochondrial health, you know, mitochondria are super important organelles for energy and metabolism generally when you say that mitochondrial health was improved what exactly does that mean so uh, just to give uh, an idea mitochondria are organelles in our cells that produce atp they are also classified as powerhouse of cells so they produce a lot of it the major production of atp happens in mitochondria and this uh, ATP generation process leads to generation of uh, reactive oxygen species. Because ATP is generated by oxidative phosphorylation system where there's electron transport chain in mitochondria that produces ATP by generating the proton gradient. But during this process, some electrons leak and they, damage, they create reactive oxygen species and they damage different cells different parts of the cell. So in when the cells are younger, they're able to overcome this oxidative stress. 
they are able to produce enough uh, antioxidants within the cells to douse this uh, reactive oxygen species. But as we age, this accumulation of the reactive oxygen species increases because cells are not able to handle it as well as they were when they were younger. And these the reactive oxygen species damage DNA, damage protein, damage uh, lipids, and that leads to this what is classified as mitochondrial dysfunction. ATP uh, production is compromised. You have uh, mitochondrial damage, and that compromises the ability of the cells to the, uh, the energy requirement of the cell is not met efficiently. Uh, and it is damaged and it dies uh, as a consequence. It in mitochondrial dysfunction will lead to senescence, for example, and that will um, kill the cell. So, do you think, you know, there's been, I've heard, you know, very prominent scientists in the aging field in the recent past say that basically they think we can completely stop and reverse aging. Um, once we understand it enough and that we might actually be relatively close to doing that. Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's, you know, if, if we just understand enough about the biology of aging and, you know, different lifestyle factors, different nutrition factors, do you think it's, it's possible in principle to completely stop or reverse aging or are we only going to be able to uh, slow it down? My personal opinion would be that uh, we do not understand the aging process, biology of aging well enough at the present time to um, reverse this process. Because variety of changes are happening which are organ-specific sometimes. Therefore, we need to understand how these um, aging processes are accumulated in the cells. How are these aging hallmarks changing from one organ to the other because set of aging hallmarks there is a different different level of different aging hallmarks contributing to liver aging versus brain aging versus muscle aging versus gut aging mm. therefore we need to understand uh, we are a multicellular species we are a, very complex we need to understand these cellular phenotypes to be more um precise manner however having said that anything is possible we have evolved we were living uh, 40 years uh, only a maximum lifespan uh, 120 years ago uh, now we are living uh, 70 80 years well uh, it is definitely possible that we will live um, 120 140 years in another uh, 50 years down the line the goal right now i think the goal is to increase the health span in a mm -hmm. foreseeable future, in my view, we can increase the health span or delay the process of aging so that we have less morbid period at the end of our lives. So we not only want to live longer, we want to live healthier. And mm -hmm. this health span is the goal of um, any anti-aging intervention. What else um, are you working on right now um, that we haven't talked about in terms of taurine or just other things that your lab is working on that maybe even have nothing to do with taurine? What are some of the um, what are some of the areas of biology and the big questions that that you think you might have answers to coming up in the next couple of years? So we are um, creating at this present time uh, a a 
investigation we are diverging into it uh as i said uh clinical trial is one of the things that we want to do accomplish in the next few years uh and that is a daunting task in itself um then we are also looking at the basic biology of aging how molecules or nutrients such as taurine my lab has also worked on vitamin b12 in the past how these uh, nutrient molecules are shaping the function of cells uh, and how these uh, nutritional requirements change with age uh, by different cell types so creating a kind of um, um, nutritional requirement landscape across human body because different cells are having different requirements and when we understand this requirement we would be able to manipulate the aging process much better uh, than when we don't have and at the present time this information is uh, is in a very um, nascent stage uh, is a very beginning of uh, understanding the requirement of cells so we need to understand what we require unless we know what we require we cannot intervene and that is what is the goal at the moment yeah what um so like towards the beginning of the conversation you talked about you had that really cool story of of cats and you know as cats became more domesticated we started engineering cat food which meant we had to have some concept of what we thought cat food needed to have in it but of course we didn't know everything and so there there were deficiencies in their diet when they weren't eating the natural whole foods they did in the wild and they transitioned to these artificial foods um one of the most interesting things that i learned you know in the past year or so of my life is that you know when humans you know humans essentially are a self-domesticated species we've domesticated ourselves analogous to the way that we've domesticated cats and dogs and other things and so you know when the agricultural revolution happened and again, I didn't know this until recently from talking to other people on the podcast and, and reading about it. But basically, my understanding is very quickly when humans became sedentary and they started sitting in one spot and farming instead of being hunter-gatherers, um, that had a lot of positive benefits that allowed us to build bigger societies and do things, but it also had a lot of negative health benefits right away. People got shorter. Um, they had certain nutrient deficiencies. And it, it sounds like there's an analogy there with the cat food story that, you know, we started making certain types of foods uh, that were related to the types of grains and other things that we could farm. And we probably stopped eating a lot of other things that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were eating. And therefore, we became nutrient deficient in ways that we didn't understand. Um so with that in mind, you know, what are your thoughts in general as an aging scientist on, you know, just just diet and nutrition from from the standpoint of eating, you know, so-called whole or natural foods versus, you know, you know, these days a lot of people take supplements. They they take, you know, drinks or other things that are supposed to have, quote unquote, all of the nutrition that you need. Um is there any risk to focusing too much on supplementation, given that there's so many question marks that there's probably still a lot of things out there in our ancestral diet that we don't even know that that we were getting? Yes, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, in, in that context, we need to look at uh, diet as a whole diet, in my view, um, because we don't know many things that are uh, deficient in it. We need to supplement, for example, many of the molecules which are which we know of, which have been proven to go down and, and um, are deficient in, in our diets, for example, vitamin B12. Um, and 
we need to understand these dietary lifestyle changes uh, and till the time we have a good intervention trial for these uh, anti-aging interventions or different uh, dietary interventions we would uh, have to just have a healthy lifestyle and uh, well eat healthy and uh, exercise uh, that is what one can do uh, in the meantime uh, right now there are many anti-aging interventions are going on trial uh, such as rapamycin metformin um resveratrol um and therefore nad analogs um, uh, alpha ketoglutarate uh and we want to put taurine on that so we just have to take this um, different anti-aging interventions do the clinical trials robustly in a placebo controlled manner let all the horses run and see uh, which horses perform better for particular function or all of them perform function. We have an anti-aging basket in front of us uh, five years down the line, which uh, clinicians can or nutritionists can choose from to supplement us uh, to for a better uh, health span. And that is what we need to do. We need to do the controlled clinical trials um, and not supplement ourselves because our body needs are, as I said in the beginning itself, our dietary patterns, our genetic makeup has evolved together uh, depending on the environment we migrated to as a human society. Uh, we all came out of Africa a long, long time ago, but we changed our, our genetics, our uh, dietary patterns to accommodate different environmental needs. And we need to understand the body physiology in different ethnicities uh, better before we know what is the ideal nutritional composition for particular ethnicities are and that understanding we do not have we cannot nobody can claim uh, that understanding because we don't have it and we don't know how many molecules such as uh, b12 or taurine uh, are changing with uh, our nutrition we don't know the entire an answer to those questions and we need to well do more research i think in my view to find out what those things are missing um well bj uh, i want to be respectful of your time and, and let you get back to the lab so you can figure the stuff out um is there anything you want to reiterate for people or any final thoughts you want to leave people with about your work or about aging and nutrition in general i would say that uh we are uh, working aggressively on entire aging field. We are coming up with the different anti-aging interventions. And I think uh, one uh, should wait for the clinical trials to be accomplished before self-supplementing themselves. Um, because most of these molecules are present uh, over the counter. And uh, we need to have a better understanding in clinical trials before we do the supplementation. And uh, it's a very bright future. We have uh, a lot of molecules going on clinical trial end of this year or early next year. And uh, within four or five years, we'll have better understanding of the aging biology and uh, these interventions. Till then, eat healthy and do exercise. All right, uh, Professor Vijay Yadav, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you.
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.